Disagreements can be awkward, right? Like depending on the context or the person, they can have varying degrees of awkwardness. Uh, one one is, is, is like the awkwardness that comes from disagreeing with a stranger. Like somebody you just meet and you're just having a conversation and they say something that you totally disagree with. And you're like, well, this is awkward. Do I engage? Do I not? Do I smile and nod? Do I pretend like I agree? What do I do? Like, do I start fighting with a stranger? It's awkward, right? But it's also awkward if you're disagreeing with someone that you thought you would agree with. Maybe you've been friends with them for some time and you think, hey, we're pretty like-minded. We think alike on these issues. And then they start talking about something and you're like, hold up. I thought we were friends. How can you think that? And now you're trying to find your point of entry. How do we engage in this disagreement? How am I supposed to process this? Disagreements with your spouse can, of course, be awkward, if not more regular. What do you do with disagreements? What do you do with a disagreement with God? That's strange, right? What do you, what do, you do if you disagree with Jesus? This was, in some ways, my problem this week. This parable that we're going to be thinking about this morning is one that I've read over the years and kind of always moved quickly on from because it does kind of seem like Jesus is being a little, he's being a little bit unfair. It does seem a little bit unjust, at least in my mind. I read it and I'm like, Jesus, I don't know. I'm, I, I kind of think I'm with the first workers. Like it seems a little bit weird that you would give the same payment to all. What do you do if you disagree but Jesus, well, obviously, you have to change your mind. Otherwise, he's not your God, right? He's, he's, he's not your Lord. Tim Keller once said something like this. He said, if you find that your God never disagrees with you, it's likely that you're just worshiping an idealized version of yourself. That's, that's really what's happening. If you never disagree with your God, it's probably because you think God is just like you, essentially, is what he's saying. At a certain point, every Christian has to realize that we come up against these texts that you're like, I don't think I agree with you, so what do I do with that? So what we want to do with that, as, as we try to process this, is what I try to do this week, which is, okay, I really got to make sure I understand what Jesus is saying, and then I have to bring my own understanding in line with the truth of what he's saying so that he can effectively, actually be Lord in my life. So we're going to try to press in for understanding this morning. And, and I found this one little bit of a commentary particularly helpful. A commentator said this week in, in one of the uh, commentaries that I was reading, he said, this parable proceeds from the typical to the atypical. In, in other words, it starts with things that you would expect. Okay, it's basic, basic day in the life, and then moves to things that are strange. And the point is that in the things that are strange and being able to separate the, the things that are normal from the things that are abnormal, that's where the lesson comes in. And I found that helpful because that's not just helpful for this parable. Really, that's a helpful principle for understanding all of the parables, or at least most of the parables. So what I want to do with our time this morning is we press in for understanding. It's just frame our conversation in that way. I start by saying what's normal and then what's abnormal. And then once we've thought about that, then we're going to ask, okay, what does it mean to me? And I've got a few lessons that I think we all collectively, myself included, and especially need to learn from this parable. But we want to begin, as I said, with what's normal. What's normal in this story? What's normal is just basically everything that happens at the beginning, <laughs> which is essentially this. 
the, war, or the master of the house goes out to find laborers for his vineyard. This is normal. Verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. This is common practice. Uh, you would probably have several household servants, but variously throughout the year, there would be different times when you would need fluctuating amounts of workers. And so as a, as a landowner, you would go out, there would be a pool of workers who would be available to you in the marketplace. You would go out and you would hire them for a day. You would offer them, you would agree with them for wages, and then you would bring them to your vineyard and they would work for you for the agreed, amount, agreed upon amount of time and money. So this is, this is very normal. If you had, of like, if these workers had a woken up this morning and you said, hey, what's your day going to look like? It would basically be this. This is what they expected. This is what the master also expected. So it's normal that he's hiring. It's also normal what they're working for. So in verse two, it says, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A denarius for a day, that's very standard. This is fair. This is just. This is what the workers would have expected. And so they receive a promise of a day's wages for a day's work. This is what they expect and agree on. This is all very normal. It's also very normal that they would be paid at the end of the day. So in verse 8, we read this. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. This is exactly the way it would have worked on any normal day. You work. At the end of the day, you receive your wages. Now, this is really important because essentially what happens is if you are a laborer, you don't have any advanced pay, you don't have bank accounts, you don't have all this, you don't, you don't have savings. What you do is you work, you get your money, and then at the end of the day, you go to the marketplace, you buy what you need, and you go and you take it home to your family who then eats. They eat because you work that day. And you got paid at the end of the day. So this is all very normal things. This is exactly what we would expect would happen, okay? So what's normal, very clear, the structure of the day, the expectations. Now let's talk a little bit about what's strange. <laughs> what's strange, which is basically everything else. So the fact that he hires repeatedly throughout the day, this is very abnormal. Look at verse 3. Going out about the third hour, so about 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. So he got, a, he got a good head start on the day. He's out there at six. He hires the first workers who are there, who are good to go. He hires them, sends them out. But then he comes back at nine o'clock, finds more workers. And then in verse four, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they don't have an agreed upon amount. He just says, whatever's right, I'll give you. Verse 5, so out they went, going out again about the 6th hour, so now about noon. And then ninth hour, that's about 3 p.m. And then in verse 6, he goes out on the 11th hour, which is now 5 p.m. So standard workday would be approximately 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. It's a pretty rough day if you're laboring out in the fields. But, but they get hired at 5 p.m., knowing that the workday ends at 6 p.m. It's very strange that this landowner, this master, would hire so many times. There's all kinds of, um, I think, bad explanations that people try to guess out of why he would do this. Some people say, oh, he just didn't know. He wasn't able to calculate um, how much work he had for the day or how many laborers he would need. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a poor explanation for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that if the guy has a field that he needs this many workers to work, he probably knows what he's doing. Um, so some people say, well, it's because of the poor work that the first workers were doing. Because they were doing such a bad job, he needed to hire more workers. But then he just would have fired the first workers. But there's no complaint about them. It seems like they did a good job. They still receive their wages at the end of the day. 
I think the key to understanding why he hires so many times throughout the day is to understand the situation, the plight of day laborers in Jesus' culture. See, again, they, they had no fixed employment, right? They had no one fixed employer who day by day would be giving them money. They had no regular paycheck that they could count on. If they did not get hired and did not get paid at the end of the day, they did not have money to buy the food, their daily bread, to take home and feed their family. There's no unions. There's no laws to protect workers. There's no minimum wage. None of these societal structures are in place. If you don't work, you do not eat. This is the situation of these workers who are standing there. They, they know that if they do not get work that day, their children will go hungry that night. Now, there's, there's a question that needs to get asked here, uh, especially because of some of the way some of the English translations translate this text, where they'll use the word idle. And in English, the word idle sounds like they're just standing around like they're lazy. It has almost ethical connotations to it. Like it sounds like these are just the lazy guys. So in verse 6, about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? In other words, not working. Why are you still here? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. The word in the original does not imply anything ethical. There's no connotation that these are lazy guys. Um, if, if you read cultural backgrounds, it's, it's speculated. Again, it's speculation, but it's, it seems to fit most likely. Like the guys who are showing up in the marketplace later on in the day are guys who are trying to, on the one hand, work their own field in the morning and then find extra work later on in the day. So, so you, you, it's not because they're lazy. It's because they're economically disadvantaged. Here's what I mean. Do you, know, do you know any families, we see this even in our own context, do you know any families with single parents where the mom or the dad, as the case may be, has to work a double shift, take a second job? Or maybe they have one job and they're looking for a second job. It's, it's not because they're lazy, right? It's because they actually need to provide. Everything depends on them. One commentator says this. He says, they're not the victims. They're the culprits. They're not the ones who are to be blamed for not being hired. The simple reality is that they're trying to find a second job to make ends meet to provide for their family. That is their situation. Though perhaps it does seem, as maybe it would be with those who are economically disadvantaged, like there's something unappealing about them based on the way that they answer, because Jesus asks them, why are you still here? And they say, no one's hired us, which implies that they weren't the first round draft picks. Uh, they, they've been there long enough to see other people get hired and they were left behind. They were not the last of all, simply, simply temporally, not just in time, in terms of order of hiring, but they're probably also the least, the ones who look the least impressive in terms of workers you could hire. So R.T. France writes this. He's, he's, trying to describe, he's trying to describe the situation of this worker. Why does, or this, this owner, why does he keep going out and hiring more workers? What could explain that? Was it the need of the owner himself, the, the field owner himself, or was it the need of the workers? R.T. France says this, the extraordinary behavior of this landowner in adding extra workers after he's already recruited all he needs in the early morning, therefore probably indicates not that he could not calculate his neighbor, labor needs in advance, but that he was acting compassionately. 
to alleviate the hardship of the unemployed. It is unlikely that he needed the extra workers and his excessive payment of them, a denarius for an hour, speaks for itself. Commercially, the man is a fool. And God is as uncalculating as that. See, there's, there's a reason for hope in this passage. There's a reason for hope for you if you feel in many ways like life has passed you by. If you feel like the grace of God has come to others, like others have managed to get what you could not get for yourself, like others have been blessed by God in ways that you could not be blessed, there is hope for you here. Maybe you're exploring Christianity. You are inclined to wanting to know Jesus. But you look around and you see Christian families, Christian households. You see kids that grow up with a mom and a dad and they grow up in stable homes. They grow up going to Christian schools and Christian camps and, and you see that somehow the training that they've gone through is a situation that you would like. Or maybe even as adults, you see people who are married and they have good habits and they've learned not to sin and it looks like they've got their life together and you look at your own life and it feels like all of that is just a pipe dream, like it's gone, like your chance is gone, like there's no grace remaining for you. You, you look at other people around you and you think, maybe, maybe God would save them because they've got something to contribute to his kingdom. I can see why God would love them. I can see why God would save them, but not me. I'm still standing here in the marketplace. No one wants me. I'm the last guy hired. I'm the last pick for the team. There is hope. Here is a story that Jesus goes out of his way to tell four people like you The kingdom of heaven is like a master who keeps hiring. He keeps coming till the 11th hour. He keeps looking for you and calling you as unattractive and unappealing as you feel. As hopeless as you feel. Here is a master who keeps hiring. Verse 9, when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. This is strange. He keeps hiring. Here's another thing that's strange. He pays them a denarius for an hour, a day's wage for an hour's work. This is insanity. Like, like France said, this is commercially, this man is a fool. This whole process started with him hiring people, saying to them, for the first workers, I'll give you a denarius. For everyone else, he said, I'll give you what's right. They would have been expecting pennies, if anything. Maybe they thought he was playing a joke on them. Come, do some work for an hour, I'll pay you. Yeah, right, what are you going to even give us? But they come and they work and they receive full pay. This is the master's choice to give full payment even to the last chosen, to the least and to the last. And here's another thing that's strange about this story. The payment is done in reverse. Did, did you notice this in verse 8? When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages. This part is so strange. Beginning with the last up to the first. 
See, the whole, the, the whole incident that's about to happen where the people are grumbling against the master, that those who were hired first are grumbling, they're dissatisfied, they're complaining, that would not have happened if the master had just done the normal thing, which is pay the first workers first. They would have got their money and they would have been off. The whole point of paying them in reverse is so that those who were paid, or those who were hired first understand that they don't get any more, that everyone gets the same. This is a strange practice. If they weren't paid in reverse, there wouldn't be the misunderstanding or the misgivings or the confusion. There wouldn't be the teaching point. But the revealing of the surprise, what the master said, I'll pay you what is right, is exactly the point. Here's what Don Carson comments. He says this. He says, The point of the parable is not that all in the kingdom will receive the same reward, but that the kingdom rewards depend on God's sovereign grace. It depends on God's sovereign grace, his own choice. I will pay you what is right. He is without constraint. He is not forced. He is not under some prior arrangement or agreement to dispense grace. That highlights this What shows me the most about you are the choices you make when you are absolutely free to do whatever you want. The freer you are, the more your heart is revealed in the choices that you make. Here, Jesus is highlighting that the master is absolutely free to do with his riches whatever he wants. He is not constrained. So what will he do with his sovereign grace? What will he do with his choice? What is right in the eyes and the heart of our master to give to even those who are hired last? The point is the lavish and ridiculous, seemingly foolish generosity of our God. It should not be a surprise. Jesus, early on in his ministry, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that our God is one who sends both the rain and the sun, both necessary for growing your fields, your crops. He sends that on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. He's he's the one who clothes grass with flowers more beautiful than Solomon in all his glory. He's the the one who feeds birds. They, They don't have barns. They can't store it up for themselves, but God lavishly provides for them all that they need. In recent chapters, we've seen this too, right? This is a kingdom that welcomes those with billions of dollars worth of debt that they can never repay. And and the master of this kingdom says, come, I will forgive all of your debt. This is a kingdom that says to the rich people who are like, hey, I've got stuff I can offer. You're not welcome. But to children who have nothing, you come. This is a kingdom that reflects the lavish generosity and kindness of our God. So if I have a problem with this parable, as I did at the beginning of the week, if you have a problem with this parable, we need to hear the voice of Jesus in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? See, here's here's the thing. Here's the problem. If we've got a problem with those who are hired last receiving the same lavish grace, it's because we, in our minds, when we read the parable, put ourselves in the place of the deserving, the place of those who've worked the hardest, the place of those who were chosen first, the place of those who seem like they have their act together. So we, we didn't need as much grace. 
so now I begrudge God giving that grace to others. The correction needs to come in realizing that what Jesus is offering is generosity to those who are poverty-stricken. This isn't good news for you if you think you actually deserve these wages. This is good news for those who say, I could never earn this. I just need God's grace. So that it frees us to rejoice when that grace goes to others as well. So this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, this is a kingdom that can only be entered through the gateway of the gospel, which levels all of us. The gospel, is, a, in its essence, is a message that says God's going to give you better than you could have ever earned, anything you could ever deserve. It's a message that says you had committed treason against the high king and the death penalty was on you. You were living on death row, but God will forgive you lavishly and not just forgiveness, but like David was saying this morning, he welcomes us with friendship. He welcomes us into his presence. He welcomes us into his family. The wrath of God was born fully by Jesus for everyone who trusts in him so that the love of God would abide on us. This is so much better than anything we could ever earn or deserve. But again, it's a message that is good news only for those who feel like they need better than they can earn for themselves. Is that you? Have you called on God for mercy, for grace, for his generosity to give you what you could never get for yourselves. Have you put your trust in Christ, the generous king? See, so if you think that what you're going to get from God is not better than what you deserve, like these first hired workers, maybe you haven't understood the gospel at all. Now, what is, what is all this mean for us? I mean, we, we've thought about what's normal in terms of the structure, but also what's abnormal, this repeated hiring and this lavish generosity and all these things. So what does it mean for us then in terms of how we're supposed to respond? I have three suggestions. The first one is this, rejoice. Rejoice in his grace. This is, this is what we're called to in response. Rejoice in the grace that God has shown to you in your life if you have believed the gospel. This would have been simple if, if for, for these workers, right? If you were hired and you were waiting all day and your hopes are dashed, you're devaluing yourself, you're, you're running yourself down, I can't get a job, I'm hopeless, and all of a sudden you're hired and then you work and then you're given this lavish grace, a whole denarius on top of, you know, th this, is, this is so great. You go home that day, what? Full of joy and thankfulness and you can't wait to tell the story to your family. Look at how God provided for us through this generous master today. You are rejoicing in the grace that you have received. If you have genuinely processed the gospel, what you deserved and what you've received instead, Christian, you are called to rejoice in the grace that God has shown you. Have you contemplated what your life would be without this grace. 
Have you contemplated where you would be today if it was not for God's saving and transforming grace? Have you contemplated the contrast of your future? Now a certain hope, resurrection life, compared with what your future would have been. Rejoice. This grace, this generosity has come to you. And the more we reflect on that and own that and think about how it's come to us in our own lives, the more it will free us to rejoice in his grace as it comes to others as well. So that we don't begrudge the master's generosity. And we, we rejoice in the master's generosity when it overflows to others who are in need just like us. This begs a question. How do you feel when real sinners are saved? When they experience forgiveness. When they come into our community. Do you begrudge the master's generosity? Keep them at arm's length? Grumble that they would be welcome here? Or do you rejoice all the more that the generosity that overflowed to you has abounded to them as well? This should be joy giving. And we should rejoice in it. We need to rejoice in his grace. Here's the second thing. We need to reflect his generosity. This is a very simple point, but it's worth stating. We need to state it. We need to think about this reality. What Jesus is talking about, obviously, is an understanding of the gospel, that in the gospel we receive greater than what we could have deserved, and yet you cannot escape the implication that the heart of the kingdom citizens, the character of the kingdom citizens, the laws of the kingdom to which we belong still govern us as we relate to others around us. In other words, it is impossible for us to say the heart of our king is generous, but we as a people will be stingy with our neighbors. That's impossible. The heart of the king has to become the character of the kingdom citizens. I want to just show you this. If God is generous, he wants us also to be generous, not simply spiritually, but monetarily. Proverbs 11, chapter 24, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You know what that is? That's God putting you on a financial hamster wheel because you're trying to hold on to what you have. Whoever brings blessings will be enriched. And one who waters will himself be watered. The Lord will care for you if you are generous with others. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults the poor man. That's not what it says, right? What does it say? Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors his maker. This is, this is about how we view God when we think about how we interact with those who are made in his image. I'm not saying that we need to all of a sudden turn into social justice warriors. But what I am saying is that kingdom citizens need to reflect the heart of their king. Look at verse 1 again. Look at the way Jesus words this. He's so consistent with this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master. Like a master of a house. The kingdom is like the master in the story. The kingdom is defined by the generosity of the king. Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. 
But blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he, the Lord, will repay him for his deed. Now maybe you think, okay, everything you're saying is simply Old Testament, right? This is just Old Covenant stuff. In Acts chapter 2, when the first Christians are saved on Pentecost, what's the impulse of the heart of the Christians who are now indwelt by the Spirit when they are saved? Acts 2, verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together. They don't know what to do yet. It's just, let's just get together every day. So they're getting together every day. It's brand new. But what do they do? They break bread in their homes. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. The Apostle Paul wants us to know that this should be codified for the church for all time. So he writes to Timothy. Here's how Timothy is supposed to instruct the church at Ephesus how they are to live. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be proud. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich, yes, in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I'm belaboring the point to try to make it as clear as I can. Yes, we rejoice in the grace of God that's revealed in this generous master, but we also have to reflect this generosity in the way we live with one another and with our neighbors as well. Here's, here's the last thing I think we need to learn from this parable is this. We need to remember Remember his economy. Remember the economy of this kingdom. Look at verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. Jesus, Jesus just said this as well in chapter 19 and verse 30. He, he's still teasing out this principle. This is not something that's just for the disciples. Sometimes we read this and we think, oh, that's because Peter and James and John, those guys are fighting about who's going to be greatest. The whole of chapters 18 to 20 is Jesus giving instructions for the kingdom after his death and resurrection. What is the community supposed to be like? He's giving us instructions for how to shape our community and our life together. Jesus is speaking to us and telling us directly that the greatest in our community must never be the one who has the most to offer. Not the one that the world esteems most highly. But we must somehow be a community of people that treasures the least and the last before the first and the foremost. These are the instructions of our king. In the kingdom of God, value is never determined by contribution, by role, no one is greater in the kingdom of God because they're here longer, because they're an elder, because they're a deacon, because they're a worship leader, small group leader, because they're male, because they're female, because they're rich, because they're poor, because they're married, because they're single. The reality is the ground at the foot of the cross is level and all of us, all of us, are fat, ugly camels that had to get squeezed through the eye of a needle. Every single one of us by the almighty grace of God alone. In this kingdom, you are not greater because of your contribution. And we must be a community 
who lives in light of this economy that our king has established for us. We want to be a people who are content with wherever we rank. Like the children, just happy to be here. Just happy the master came to the marketplace. Happy he called me. Happy he hired me. Rejoicing in whatever he has chosen to give me. A people who rejoice in his grace, who reflect his generosity to one another and remember his economy and our relationships in the church. Here is the reign of a generous king. Do you agree with him? Or do you begrudge his generosity? May the Lord make us this kind of a people. Let's pray.